Well, I don't know if it's a thing in Barbados or not, but in Canada, many restaurants offer sampler platters uh, where you get a little bit of many different dishes uh, in one thing. So you go somewhere to a restaurant and you order a sampler platter and you don't get a lot of any one thing, but you get a little bit of a lot of different things. And so you get to taste a number of the different things on the menu. Um, maybe a little bit of onion rings, a little bit of chicken wings, a little bit of potato skins, a little bit of bread and spinach dip or whatever it is that the restaurant serves. Uh, not a lot of any one thing, but a little bit of everything. Today's message will be a little bit like that this morning. Uh, because as we launch Covenant Reformed Baptist Church, I'm beginning a sermon series in the book of Ephesians that we will work together uh, through the whole book each Sunday morning over the next several months. And we're just starting Ephesians this morning. And as this is the first message in that series on Ephesians, I'm going to try to give you an introduction to and an overview of the book of Ephesians. And so I say this message is going to be a little bit like a sampler platter because we're going to look at the first two verses which serve as an introduction. And we're going to look at several other verses and ideas throughout the book of Ephesians as I try to give you a big picture overview of the book. So it'll be a sampler platter, a little bit of each chapter without spending much time on any particular one. For those of you who like outlines, here's what we're going to do today. We're going to begin with verse 1, and then we're going to broaden our perspective to see the big picture of the whole book, and then we're going to finish by zooming back in and looking at verse 2. And so the goal is that by the end of today we have a good foundation uh, which we can build on in subsequent weeks as we work our way through the book of Ephesians. That hopefully we're going to lay uh, a solid foundation and give a good introduction to the book of Ephesians this morning. So, okay, to begin with, Paul opens by telling his readers who is writing. You see, Ephesians is simply a letter. We think of it as a book of the Bible, uh, one of the 66 books of the Bible. Um, but what Ephesians actually is, in its essence, is a letter. It's a letter from someone uh, to another person. And it's been incorporated into the canon of Scripture, but it wasn't written as part of an anthology to be included in a book. Like this. Paul didn't sit down and say, I'm going to write a book of the Bible. Paul sat down to say, I'm going to write a letter. And so the first thing that Paul does uh, as he begins Ephesians is by telling his readers who is writing. The first two verses are kind of like the envelope of a letter. They tell us who the letter is from and who the letter is addressed to. So Paul begins by letting his readers know who is writing. He says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Of course, Paul mentions his name, but why does he specify that he is Paul, an apostle? He writes that he is Paul, an apostle, in order to establish his authority and give weight to his letter. In our context here in Barbados in the 21st century, it might be helpful to define what an apostle actually is, since there seems to be an abundance of confusion in certain circles about such things. Sinclair Ferguson, who is a Presbyterian minister in the U.S., uh, is really helpful to us here. Allow me a lengthy quote from Sinclair Ferguson. He writes, The Greek word apostolos means a sent one. It was sometimes used in classical literature for a naval expedition, the commander of which might also be known as an apostolos. The authority of an apostle to speak and act was therefore dependent on the nature of the authority of the sender. 
This, that is why it is important to notice that the word is used in more than one way in the New Testament. First, and this is still Sinclair Ferguson, it is used of Jesus himself. For example, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1. Jesus is the Son of God whom God sent into the world. You can look at John chapter 3 and verse 17 to see that he's sent. He's a sent one. So apostle is used in that sense of Jesus. Secondly, it is used of the 12, Sinclair Ferguson says, whom Jesus called and trained to be part of the foundation of the church. And uh, we could also add Paul in there and make the number 13. And then thirdly, it is sometimes used of believers commissioned by their congregation for special service. And in this sense, apostle and missionary mean basically the same. The former term is derived from the Greek and the latter from Latin. And both of those words mean to send. Uh, apostle and missionary are the two words. So in this uh, sense, Barnabas and Saul were both apostles in this sense. Look at Acts 14, 14, and you see that. So there actually were other apostles besides the 12, uh, besides Paul. Um, but there was uh, something unique about the 12 original apostles minus Judas plus Matthias and Paul. Um, so Barnabas wasn't an apostle of Christ Jesus. Barnabas was an apostle of the church at Antioch. And so uh, I'm going to end. That was kind of at the end there. I started to mix my words in Sinclair Ferguson. So I apologize if Dr. Ferguson ever listens to this message. Um, but basically those three senses are the senses in which the word apostolos is used in the New Testament. So an apostle is basically one sent by another. Uh, it could be a ship captain sent out by a company to go do something on the seas. It could be a missionary sent out by a church like Barnabas. It could be Jesus sent by the Father to come and redeem us. Or it could be the uh, 12 minus Judas plus Matthias and Paul who are directly commissioned by Christ Jesus to speak and act on his behalf. So an apostle is basically a, one sent by another who has, and this is the key, all the authority of the sender as he acts as a representative of the sender. So when someone claims to be an apostle, the question should naturally arise in our minds, an apostle of whom or an apostle of what? With whose authority does this person claim to speak and act? Jesus was an apostle of the triune God. Barnabas and Saul were apostles of the church in Antioch. And there were 13, and only 13, as we will see later in the book of Ephesians, apostles of Christ Jesus, as Paul refers to himself here. The original 12, minus Judas, plus Matthias and Paul. Uh, only 13 who are, as Charles Hodge puts it, plenipotentiaries of Christ. And that means that they had uh, the ability to act on Christ's behalf, to speak and act with the authority of Christ himself. Uh, they were men personally selected by Christ Jesus and sent out, invested with full authority to teach and to rule in his name. These 13 plenipotentiaries of Christ, Hodge goes on to say, were not confined to any one territory, but had general jurisdiction over the churches, as is manifest from their letters. So Paul indicates that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God in order to establish his warrant for writing to the Ephesians. He does have legitimate authority to write to them. He is called and commissioned by Christ Jesus himself according to God's will. 
It is God's will that Paul have authority over the various local churches scattered throughout the Roman Empire at that time. It is God's will that Paul have authority to tell them what to believe and how to behave. And to this end, Paul has been appointed and commissioned by Christ Jesus himself. And so as one appointed as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, Paul has the full weight of Christ's authority behind him as a representative of Christ Jesus, sent by Christ Jesus to teach and rule in his name. And thus, the recipients of the letter should listen to him. Paul writes that he is an apostle in order to establish his authority and give weight to his letter. The logic goes something like this. As an apostle, Paul's authority is derived from God. And so ultimately then, Paul's teaching is God's teaching. Therefore, Paul has legitimate grounds to write an authoritative letter to the Ephesian church. And the Ephesian church, therefore, ought to listen up. So Paul, an apostle, is the author of this letter. Who are the recipients? It goes on to say, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Saint just means Christian. All saints are true Christians, and all true Christians are saints. This is clear from the New Testament usage of the term. It's clear from Paul's usage of the term uh, throughout the New Testament. Perhaps the clearest verse in the New Testament in making this point is 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, which says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what that says is, all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in every place are called to be saints. And so all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, all true Christians everywhere are saints. So when Paul says that he's writing to the saints in Ephesus, he means all the Christians. And when he writes to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Paul's not addressing a subset of saints as if there were the faithful saints and then the unfaithful saints. And he's speaking to the faithful saints. Uh, Rather, Paul assumes that, as John Calvin said, no one is a believer who is not holy or faithful. And no one is holy or faithful who is not a believer. So Paul may be making the point that those who are not faithful have no grounds to consider themselves saints either. Uh, That may be partially in view, but Paul is certainly not thinking of two categories of people, the saints and the faithful, nor is he narrowing the field as if he starts by saying the saints and then addresses a subset of them, those who are the faithful saints. Um, He's writing, when he writes to those, the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, he's writing to true Christians in Ephesus who are saints and at the same time who are faithful, as all saints are. So, uh, he's writing to them. And where are they? It says they are in Ephesus, the saints who are in Ephesus. So clearly the uh, Ephesian Christians are in view here. But there's actually a good case to be made that the Ephesians were the primary intended recipients of the letter, but that Paul also intended it to be a circular letter read in other places as well. So in other words... It was written to the Ephesians, but Paul uh, desired that it also be passed along to other churches, which would account for the absence of detail given about the Ephesians' particular situation. If you read Colossians, by contrast, it's chock full of specific things that the Colossian church were dealing with, whereas the Ephesian letter is much more general. 
uh, stuff that most of it would be relevant to all Christians, uh, especially all those living at that time. Uh, that would also make sense of the reference in Colossians to have the letter uh, from the Laodiceans read to them. Because if Paul circulated a letter that was directed primarily to the Ephesians, but to be circulated in the general area, Ephesians may actually be the letter that ended up in Laodicea, which the Colossians were to have read in their church. That's conjecture, but um, I think there's a pretty good case for that, actually. In any case, regardless of what it was originally intended to be, Ephesians is a very general letter, as opposed to Colossians, for example, by contrast, which is very specific dealing with very specific problems in the church in Colossae. Um, so as a very general epistle written for broader consumption than just one local church, much of what Paul says will be directly applicable to us as he makes statements, general statements about the nature of God's character, about the nature of the Christian's relationship to God in Christ, etc. But at points throughout the letter, we, we might need to figure out first what Paul was saying to the original readers and then consider what the implications are for us. In other words, we need to be conscious as we read Ephesians that we're basically reading someone else's mail. And so just as I wouldn't go across the street and grab a letter out of my neighbor's mailbox and open up and say, oh, look, it says, Ronald, I love you, from Grandma. And I, I would not think to myself, oh, Ronald's grandmother loves me, because I would realize I'm actually reading someone else's mail, right? We kind of have to do that when we come to the scriptures. We have to recognize that this is written not to us, but for us. And it's beneficial for us as we first figure out what was uh, this written to say to the original recipients and then figure out what are the implications of that for us. Uh, where is our situation the same as them? In which case it may be directly applicable. Where does our situation differ? In which case we can take that difference into account as we seek to apply it to our lives. So, that's verse 1. We've read now basically the outside of the envelope. We now basically know who's writing and who is the recipients of this letter. So now let's look at the big picture of the book of Ephesians and try to get an overview of what to expect over the next several months as we study this book together. As I try to give you an overview, let me give you two things to remember. The first is the structure of the book. And the second is the thesis statement of the book. And a thesis statement is basically a summary statement, uh, something that captures up what is the main point of something. So let's begin with the structure of the book. This letter can actually basically be cut in half at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. Ephesians actually really very clearly and very plainly has two sections. The first half, chapters 1 through 3, deals primarily with what theologians have called indicatives. In other words, that which God has done. In chapters 1 through 3, you find hardly anything about what we must do. Chapters 1 through 3 is basically almost entirely all about what God has done. If anything, we're just encouraged to remember what God has done, think about what God has done, etc., etc. But the emphasis in chapters 1 through 3 is primarily upon what God has done, or indicatives. The second half of Ephesians deals primarily with what theologians have called imperatives, which are things that we must do. So in other words, Paul begins the letter to the Ephesians with a section about what God has done for his people, and then Paul concludes with a section urging God's people to respond to what God has done for them in Christ Jesus. So in the first three chapters, we see the following things that God has done for his people. 
Look at your Bibles. Chapter 1 and verse 3. God has blessed us in Christ. Chapter 1 and verse 4. God has chosen us in Christ. Chapter 1 and verse 5. He has predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse 7. He has redeemed us through His blood, forgiven our trespasses. Verse 8, He has lavished the riches of His grace upon us. Verse 9, He has made known to us the mystery of His will. Verse 11, He has given us an inheritance. Verse 13, He has sealed us with the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, He has promised to give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Verse 18, He has promised to enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Verse 22, He has raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand. Verse 23, He has put all things under Christ's feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church. Chapter 2 and verse 5, He has made us alive together with Christ who were once dead in our trespasses and our sins. Chapter 2 and verse 6, He has seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, He has saved us through faith. Verse 10, He has created us in Christ Jesus for good works. Verse 13, He, pardon me, verse 10 still, He has prepared good works for us beforehand. Verse 13, He has brought us near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, He has made Jews and Gentiles one and broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 17, He has preached peace to us who are far off and peace to us who are near. Verse 18, God has given us access in one spirit to the Father. Verse 19, God has made us no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens of the household of God. Verse 22, God is building us together into a dwelling place for Himself by the Spirit. Chapter 3 and verse 6, God has revealed the mystery of Jews and Gentiles together as fellow heirs. Chapter 3 and verse 9, God has brought to light for us the plan of God. Chapter 3 and verse 16, God has promised to strengthen us with power through His Spirit. Verse 17, God has promised to make Christ dwell in our hearts rooting us and grounding us in love. Chapter 3 and verse 18, God has promised to give us strength to comprehend the love of Christ. Those were all the ones that I found as I looked through this morning. I just wrote them down briefly. I may have missed one or two. But hallelujah. What a glorious, glorious calling we have received who have been called into God's family, who have been called to faith in Christ Jesus, who have called to belong to God, who have been pardoned, who have been justified, who have been adopted into His family. Hallelujah. Praise God for this glorious, glorious calling. God planned our salvation in eternity past. Chapter 1 tells us, knowing full well that we would sin against Him. The fall didn't catch God by surprise. He knew that we would do what His law forbids and that we would fail to do what His law commands. And God nevertheless planned to save us from the penalty and from the power and from the effects of sin. And God sent His Son, Christ Jesus, to come and answer the demands of the law for us. To live as our substitute, 
a perfectly righteous and law-keeping life. To die as our substitute, a punishment-bearing death that we deserved to die. And whoever puts their trust in Christ's substitutionary life and death gain the hope of the resurrection from the dead. That just as Christ was raised, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, so we will be raised. For by faith in Christ Jesus, all the demands of the law have been answered on our behalf. The law can no longer make legal demands of us, for Christ has already answered the legal demands of the law for us. Christ has already done what the law requires, and Christ has received in Himself the penalty that the law requires for its breach. And so then, the law no longer has dominion over us. We are no longer under the law in such a way as to be either justified or condemned by it. We are in Christ Jesus. And God the Father and God the Son sent God the Spirit to come and apply this great salvation to us, waking us up from our spiritual slumber. More than that, resurrecting us from our spiritual deadness, giving us the new birth, spiritual eyes to see and ears to hear, new affections in our hearts, new inclinations away from sin and toward Christ Jesus. And by the Spirit's power at work within us, we saw the glory of Christ as the Savior and rested our souls in Him. And the Spirit now ministers the things of Christ to us, unfolding to us all the blessings and benefits of the new covenant until one day He raises our bodies from the grave as He did to Christ Jesus so long ago. Wow, again, hallelujah. What a glorious calling. These are the subjects and the themes. And we just took a little bird's eye view uh, flight over chapters 1 through 3 just now. And we'll unpack them in more detail in coming weeks. But what a glorious, glorious calling. And this leads us to the thesis statement of the book, which, again, is just a fancy way of saying a concise summary of the main point or claim. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. This is where we leave the first half of the book and go into the second half of the book. And Paul says, I therefore, and when we see therefore, we've got to ask what it's there for. Right? So when we see a therefore, we always know we've got to look backwards to see what preceded it so that we can understand the train of thought. So we've just seen Paul give us a picture of this glorious calling that we have in Christ Jesus. And then what he says in chapter 4 and verse 1 is, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, or a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What calling? I don't see in chapter 3 and verse 17 anything about a calling here. What What calling? Hmm, let's see, uh, chapter 3, verse 21. I, we don't see the word immediately before chapter 4, verse 1. But that doesn't mean that the idea is not there. Because basically what Paul is doing is in chapter 4 and verse 1, he's saying, in view of everything I've just said, which can be summed up as an exposition of the glorious calling that you have in Christ Jesus. In view of everything that I just said, walk in a manner worthy of that glorious calling. So Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1 is kind of like the hinge 
where uh, we turn and walk through the doorway, uh, where the doorway turns by which we walk through from the first half of the letter of Ephesians to the second half. Uh, we move out of the indicatives, what God has done. We walk through the doorway, past this hinge where the tone of the letter changes into the section that is primarily focused on imperatives. That is what we must do. And uh, so Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1 serves as kind of a thesis statement or summary statement of the whole book. It captures both major elements of the book of Ephesians. Imperatives and indicatives are both there in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. Uh, it urges the Ephesians to remember the glorious calling that they've received, everything they just heard about, and then now to respond to that glorious calling in the ways that Paul will outline in chapters 4 through 6. And so in, in chapters 4 through 6, Paul will address the right response to the glorious calling of Christians in the church, the right response of, to the glorious calling of Christians in the world, the right response to the glorious calling of Christians in the family, and the right response to the glorious calling of Christians in the workplace. And finally, Paul will close with the right response to the glorious calling of Christians in spiritual warfare. And so in this way, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 serves as the thesis statement or the summary statement of the whole book. The calling you've received looks backward at chapters 1 through 3 and walking in a manner worthy of the calling you've received anticipates what's to come in chapters 4 through 6. So that's an overview of the book. So let's go back now to chapter 1 and verse 2 as we move toward a conclusion to today's message. Chapter 1 and verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the goal of Paul's letter. That the Ephesians would receive grace and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes with apostolic authority to that end. Uh, and he also writes under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit to that end. So when God wants to give grace and peace to the Ephesians, he inspires Paul to write this letter. God is the ultimate author of the letter to Ephesians as the one who inspired Paul. And so God is ultimately the one who wishes grace and peace for the Ephesian Christians. And so what does God say to those among the Ephesians to whom he wishes to grant grace and peace? What message does God the Father bring to accomplish that person, purpose? What message does God the Spirit bring to accomplish that purpose as he inspires Paul? Paul brings an exposition of the gospel, of the good news about Jesus Christ. Paul begins by explaining the Trinitarian origins of the gospel and the Trinitarian workings in the gospel, how God the Father works in the gospel, how God the Son works in the gospel, how God the Spirit works in the gospel. In chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, which we'll be looking at over the next few weeks, Paul makes it so clear that Christians are not saved by God the Son acting in isolation from God the Father and God the Spirit, but Christians are saved by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit working together for the salvation of sinners. So Paul explains that, and then he uh, leads Paul to pray in chapter 1, 
verses 15 to 23, that the Ephesians will understand the gospel better. God inspires Paul to give another summary of the gospel from the vantage point of our experience of it, which is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So chapter 1, verses 3 to 14 is kind of like from the top looking down how God has worked uh, to bring us our salvation. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 is kind of like from the ground looking up. We were dead and then we were alive. And how did we receive this grace? Uh, So chapter 1, verses 3 to 14 is kind of like a top-down view of the gospel. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 is kind of a bottom-up view of the gospel. And Paul brings, explains how the gospel brings all kinds of people worldwide together in Christ by including Gentiles in the fulfillment of the promises to Israel in the second half of chapter 2. God explains through the apostle how he used his servant, Paul, to make the mystery of Gentile inclusion clear in the administration of the new covenant in chapters, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Then again, at the end of chapter 3, Paul prays that the Ephesians would understand the gospel better. So, when God wants to grant the Ephesian Christians grace and peace, how did He do it in this instance? He inspired Paul to give an exposition of the gospel and to pray that the Ephesians would be able to understand it and apply it to their lives. Mark Dever says, and I quote, Notice that both times Paul prays, chapters 1 and 3, he prays that they would have knowledge. He prays that their understanding, uh, or pardon me, he prays that they would have knowledge. He knows that their understanding will provide the basis for their actions. So he prays that their understanding will be enlarged. Here's how it works. God's Spirit works in and through the proclamation of God's Word to help us see the glory of God more clearly, to apprehend more fully the love of God in Christ towards us. God's Spirit works in and through the proclamation of God's Word to strengthen us and sanctify us in our Christian lives. In other words, God's Spirit uses the knowledge of the Gospel to give us grace and peace in the first place as we're initially reconciled to God at the beginning of our Christian lives. We receive grace and peace, how? Because the gospel, when the gospel is proclaimed and the Holy Spirit gives us the new birth, eyes to see, ears to hear, and we receive that message by faith, we receive grace and peace from God in the beginning of our Christian lives. But remember, Paul is already writing to those who are already Christians. right? And so he's not wishing them initial grace and peace, but he's wishing them further grace and peace. And how... What is God's strategy for giving further grace and peace to the Ephesian church? Again, an exposition of the gospel. Paul prays that the Holy Spirit will help the Ephesians understand the things that are written in chapters 1 through 3. Enlarge their understanding, their apprehension of these things, and help them them work it into their hearts and help them work it out in their lives. And so, um, God uses the knowledge of the gospel in the hands of His Spirit to give us further grace and peace on an ongoing basis as we grow in sanctification. So that's the sampler platter. Today's message was a little different than what you can expect in future weeks because I'm trying to do kind of a bird's eye view today. But what we'll do in future weeks is take little chunks of Ephesians and try to, try to drill down deeply 
into what is being said specifically in that passage. And we'll try to look at greater detail uh, at uh, every section of the book of Ephesians as we work through it over the next uh, several months. And my prayer as we embark on this study of Ephesians is that God's Spirit will use our study to give grace and peace to everyone within earshot. That just as the Ephesians uh, were to grow in grace and peace through this exposition of the gospel in the hands of the Holy Spirit, so I pray that we will grow in grace and peace through this exposition of the gospel in the hands of the Holy Spirit. I pray that uh, as we see this glorious summary of a glorious salvation and of our glorious calling to partake of it, uh, and the way that we ought to respond to it, I pray that God's Spirit will use uh, this exposition over the next number of months to help us grow in grace and peace. If you're uh, here today and you would call yourself a Christian, but you've never thought about the gospel in the way that we've just seen it summarized here in the book of Ephesians, maybe you've misunderstood the essence of biblical Christianity. And maybe you might need to begin rather than to continue your Christian life from today. Turn to Christ for the salvation of your sin. Recognize that it's His glorious work for you that is the basis of your salvation and not your work for Him. And give God the glory that He is due for your salvation. Receive grace and peace from God as He reconciles you to Him through His Son. Then begin trying to live in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. And if you know that you're not a Christian and would not have claimed to be prior to today, do the same. Look to God in repentance and in faith and seek the grace and the peace that comes to us in the gospel that's unfolded here in the book of Ephesians. But if you're already a Christian, already a genuine Christian, which most of us in this room are, and you've already received grace and peace from God in some measure, make Paul's prayer your own as we embark on this study. Pray that through the explication of the gospel in Ephesians over the next several months, that God will help you further to know the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? Pray that God would help you to have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God.